0: Cade Mila Folta, welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. Hello everybody and welcome to the Letter from Ireland show. And now we're on to the final episode in the fourth series. It's lovely to have your company with us every time and on every episode. Can you believe that we are now on the final episode? And what a whirlwind series it was. For today's show, we picked six highlights from this series. Remember, we started off in Tasmania, then we went to the northeast of the US, visiting Ellis Island, New York, on to Boston. Nearer home, we visited Wales in the UK, then Dublin, and finally we were back home to Cork, Ireland. Along the way, we've shared your stories of searching for your Irish heritage, and then we took a deeper look into the research methods and shared tools to help break down those Irish ancestry brick walls. Mike chatted about his research wheel in the green room, which was also a wonderful all-round tool to help you get to grips with the complexity of the Irish ancestry records. Then Jane McGarvey, our Irish-based genealogist from Northern Ireland, showed how to progress along to becoming a competent Irish family history researcher. And while we were in Boston, we took the opportunity to chat with Pam Holland, who is now our US-based genealogist in the green room, and she gave some very valuable pointers on finding those essential US records before looking for your ancestors back in Ireland. So would you like to hear more? Because if any of those interviews caught your attention, do stay listening as we're going to capture the highlights of the series in today's Letter from Ireland show. Now, before we start into today's show, remember you can see all the links we mentioned in the show notes at a letter from Ireland.com forward slash 410. So let's kick off. We Irish love a good story, so why don't we begin the show today with some stories from our members mentioned throughout series four? Here is Doug in Tasmania from episode 401 and Doug's Irish ancestors the Barretts moved from Sligo in the northwest of Ireland to Tasmania back in the early 1800s. We chatted with Doug overlooking the beautiful Tamar River outside Launceston in northern Tasmania and we were standing on the old farmland where Doug's great-grandfather James Barrett from Sligo first farmed. Here he tells about his enterprising Barrett family and how they fared in Tasmania. We're here on the Irish-Australian Ancestry Trail and today we're meeting Doug Barrett. And Doug, you've driven us out from Launceston in Tasmania uh, to this wonderful farm here. So can you tell us why you brought us to this farm?
1: Well, this is the uh, the place where my great-grandfather settled. Said- on the eastern side of the Tamar River in uh, in the 1830s, and uh, they came out from. There two brothers came out from Ireland.
0: Where in Ireland did they come from? Uh, Sligo. And what did they do when they were in Ireland? What was their well, work that's there?
1: A, that's a bit of a mystery at the moment. We're not really certain. Um, there's rumours that they work for the uh, the Sligo Harbour Trust and uh, there's uh, also rumours that they're in the uh, Sligo Militia,
0: uh-huh. um,
1: but nothing's been proven yet.
0: So James Barrett came out here, and William, and James settled on this land here?
1: He settled on this land and... Uh,
0: How big it, a farm was that at the time?
1: It, it's uh, a thousand acres.
0: Wow, okay.
1: And. Uh, he uh, slowly cleared it by hand. He had a contract with the government to supply firewood, and uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, things got bad for him, and he and ended up dying of cancer.
0: Did he? Was there other things he got up to while he was here?
1: Well, he was uh, involved in the. Uh, uh, the liberation of uh, escaped Irish uh, political prisoners,
0: and that was
1: uh, Thomas Marr Okay, and um, John Mitchell, and uh, that, that's, that's only two. That that uh, there's books written about uh, both of those two convicts. And,
0: and you were saying earlier to us that he he rode them up to the.
1: He he rode them. Uh, from up the Tamer, uh, right down and out to uh, Waterhouse Island, which is uh, uh, about twenty miles off the mouth oh. of the Tamer River. So it was a fair, fair journey, and most of it was done by uh,
0: hand. Was it rowing? Just row row boats.
1: Done in the middle of the night.
0: Oh my goodness! So he navigated the river in the middle of the night and got the people out to that island, where the boats then took them to America. I think is it you were saying?
1: Yes, they uh, uh, stayed. Some of them had to stay there for ten days or a fortnight until a boat came past to uh, pick them up.
0: Wow. I see, and he himself uh, then got ill. I think you were saying when he was—he he wasn't that old—and he he died from cancer.
1: He, he died from cancer, and uh, then the family uh, had to move off this property. And this
0: wonderful property—they had to let let go.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, they moved over to the, the Ferno Group. Uh, the uh, the government offered cheap land. Uh,
0: and the the, Farno the group is a group of islands,
1: isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes. It's uh, Flinders Island is the largest island. Uh, there's 52 islands in the group, and uh, the uh, the French were snooping around, and uh, the government uh, wanted all the islands uh, uh, habitated,
0: populated, yeah,
1: and uh, so that uh, the French would be. Uh, warned off, uh-huh. and uh,
0: so his wife and, and and son moved onto that onto one of those islands. There,
1: the island, Long Island, and uh, established the uh, the first shop and post office in the Furno Group.
0: Oh, enterprising people! So, uh,
1: and as, as well as uh, he had a, a, a trading catch which he uh, operated from the Furno Group to Launceston.
0: This was his son.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. supplies.
0: Very good. And you discovered something recently um, that there was a grave there.
1: Yes, there's um, uh, a grave on Waterhouse Island that that belongs to uh, James Barrett, my great grandfather. Yeah. I've been searching for that grave for, for years and i stumbled across it by chance only last week.
0: And you yourself live now, or lived out on those islands as well?
1: I, I lived there until um, uh, last year, this time last year and I moved to La tribe in
0: Doug's family, of course, travelled freely and by choice to Tasmania to begin a new life. But others were not so fortunate. And here is the story of the women convicts who were the mothers of modern Tasmania. I'm standing in the female Cascades factory, a factory really being a workhouse, a penitentiary prison for females in Hobart, just outside Hobart under Mount Wellington. And this location here for the factory was, uh, was originally a rum distillery and was bought by the government in 1826, uh, somewhere to house convicts, women convicts. So the women convicts were marched here in the middle of the night so as not to attract any attention from the locals or the sailors down at the port in Hobart. And they came here and spent uh, either as a first, second or third class prisoner their years here. They could be here for seven, 14, 21 or life, depending on what their crime was. For a crime as little as stealing an egg, Um, the guide told us there, there was a little girl picked up. She was 11 years and sent out here for stealing an egg so it's been uh, almost traumatic really for us just even looking around the yards as they were called and this is the women's clothes just behind me here which would have been really heavy cotton their heads were shaved when they came here they were put into these heavy cotton outfits and uh, marked with uh, c for convict Um, and really it was very very inhuman and we're we're here now on the final yard that we've been brought to and this is the nursery and as many as 70 75% 75% of the children died here. And of course, they were never allowed here after the age of three and they were moved on to the orphanage. So it's, it's, it's quite shocking. But I suppose one hopeful thing about it was at the end, I, I remember reading that between one of five and one of seven Australians today are descended from these women who were, as our guide said, more sinned against than sinners. Here is Jack Walsh, manager of the Cove Heritage Museum in Cove County, Cork, And of course, three million of our ancestors left Ireland from Cove. This is episode 407. Have a listen to what Jack has to say. So we've stepped into Cove, into the old railway station, which is now Cove Heritage Centre. And I'm here chatting with Jack Walsh. Jack, you're the manager here of the centre. And can you tell us a little bit about your own background and where you started off with all these transatlantic journeys, maybe in your own life?
2: My first memory would be when I was growing up as a little boy, my family had a pub in a place called The Stoll in County Kerry. And my mother was the agent for the Cunard shipping line. So she sold tickets to any of the local young guys or young girls who were contemplating uh, emigrating, especially to the US. And I often watched those guys sitting in the bar with their pints, filling in all the documentation. And possibly a week later, those guys were gone off to New York, Boston, Chicago, wherever, in lots of cases they were probably never seen again. And th- that was in the early 1960s. But I suppose if you think of, if you have gone back 100 years to the 1850s, 1860s, anybody contemplating emigrating to the US at that stage, they definitely didn't come back. And they had a tougher journey because, you know, nowadays you have trains, cars, buses. In those days you had donkeys donkey and carts and uh, maybe rowing boats.
0: So how would a person have come down here to Cove and got on the boat? What would their journey have been like?
2: Well, from the 1860s onwards they could have caught the train in some place like Killarney and gone to Cork then got the train from Cork to, to Cove and then directly onto the ships. Um, but a lot of them, depending on when they arrived uh, and when their ship was sailing would have had to get lodging somewhere in Cove and the lodging houses were famous. Um because you didn't know what you were going to find in there, right? And the and the, uh, the the banantees, as we call them here, the lodging house ladies had lots of little different ways of getting business and saving a few pound.
0: For example, I'm sure if, you must tell me about one of those.
2: If, for example, you had booked for your bed and breakfast uh, at maybe six o'clock in the morning before breakfast was being served. Somebody was shouting outside the door. Quickly, everybody, the boat is here, right? So everybody would leave the bed and breakfast. Been no breakfast served. The ban and tea's already been paid for it. So little tricks like that. Um, but the lodging houses in, in Cove were famous at that time because people were coming from all over the country. Um, a lot of them were young. They didn't know the way around. They were sort of, sort of rural people from the west of Ireland, for example. Coming into a large town would have been strange, but a town they'd never been in, looking for somewhere to stay, they had to trust people, and they were very trusting. They didn't always leave with the money they arrived with. Let's put it that way.
0: And that I was different. and that was the start of their journey. Yeah,
2: and um, you know, f- from here, then you know, you you get on a ship in in the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. It might have been two or three weeks sailing across the Atlantic in all sorts of weather. Um, so a lot of them were you know sort of fairly sick when they got to the other side.
0: Thanks very much, Jack, for filling us in oh, on what it was like. And we're going to have a look around the Heritage Centre now and uh, see the different parts there. And I know you have some stories about the families that came through, so we'll we'll chat some more. Thanks yeah, very much.
3: No
2: problem at all.
0: And we had stories from the U.S. too on Ellis Island, episode four oh seven. Green Room members generously shared the stories handed down in their families about those who travelled through Ellis Island and the keepsakes they brought with them from Ireland. Here is Deirdre Maguire. Deirdre, you've joined us today on the tour of Ellis Island because your family, the Maguires?
4: They came over here. They were living in Black Lion, my grandfather. So Black and Lion is between Cavan. and and Fermanagh, which is like the seat of all the Maguires. And um, I've actually been to the Maguire Castle up in Anniskellen. And uh, they have a fascinating folk museum there as well. So I've come full circle here. And when your Maguire
0: came here, who who was that? What was the name of that Maguire that, that came here? That was John
4: Maguire. And yeah. he came here through Ellis Island. He came through Ellis Island, yes. And uh, what year would that have been, dear John? 1904. Okay. He was 26 years old, and then he met my grandmother here, who was also from Cabin. She was a Brady, and they got married and they had two children.
0: And did they stay around this area here of Ellis
4: Island? They stayed in Manhattan. They were up near St. John the Divine is where they raised the family. And And I know
0: we were looking at the cases in the hall there when we came in, and that you mentioned the the luggage cases. Yes. And you mentioned a little story you had about that. Would you like to share that with us? Yeah,
4: my grandmother had a trunk that she brought with her, and I still have it up in my attic and she brought it through here, and it had uh, some her clothing, and her sister's clothing, and she had some cast iron pots and pans that was still in the family when I was a child. Yeah, that's what we've noticed
0: today, that people all have little memories of things that came through and that even though it's down two generations, they still have those, whether it's shoes or clothes or
4: pots. And there was a Balik teapot, which I guess was a treasure at that time. Oh, it still is. That smashed into a hundred pieces at some point. We we call those smithereens. And Fermanagh? Yes, the Balik from Fermanagh. That uh, now I assume she got it there and brought it over with her. You know, yeah. She it was very, very old and just glued together when I was a child. And again, I don't know what's happened to it.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Deirdre. Thanks for sharing your story with us. And as we left Ellis Island, New York, here is Jane McAsee with her memories as she shares them with us about her. Irish ancestor on episode 407.
5: Hi, I'm Jane. I'm from Kearney, New Jersey, but I grew up right here in Jersey City, where Liberty State Park is, where the uh, ferry takes off to Ellis Island. And this was where if the ancestor, or ancestors or the immigrants would come through the doors over there and come over here and take trains to wherever their final destination might be. They might, it might be just in New Jersey, it might be. Chicago. It might be somewhere out in the Midwest. At least this is what I've been told. I'm not, not yes. exactly sure. And about just it. looking at it today, you yes. can see the still the
0: platforms Absolutely. exactly where the trains would sort have of pulled in. Yes. And you can almost imagine it crowded with people, yes, can't exactly, you? Exactly. Yeah.
5: Exactly. To think that my gre- my grandfather, came through these these this in, place here. And um, 19- that was in 1905. In 1905. And what was his
0: name, Jane? John Feeney. John Feeney yeah. from Galway. Many listeners to the show and readers of the letter joined the Green Room to discover more about their Irish ancestors. From episode 405, called Five Years and 90,000 Questions, Mike explains how it all began.
3: Yeah, isn't it amazing, five plus years at this stage? I mean, we were just talking about this the other day, Karina, and there's there's been how to put it, I suppose if you're kind of the sort of person just writes a book or something and fires it out there and meets the fans every now and again, that's one sort of uh, operation. But in our case, we found very, very quickly that as soon as you actually put something out there, a hundred questions came back, you know, and I suppose rather than actually kind of, you know, putting our hands to our heads and saying how on earth do we deal with all these, we kind of embraced it and started first on Facebook then on the letter from Ireland five years ago. Then in the green room to embrace so many of those questions, and uh, I, I still can't get over it really. But you know, it really is amazing at the same time that we have that letter going out every Sunday morning to tens of thousands of people of tens of thousands of people of Irish descent all over the world, and in just bringing up those stories about everything from the Irish weather to surnames to counties, history, and culture. That, you know, you literally and I literally have to put some days aside every week just to deal with all the answers.
0: And it wasn't long before Mike shared a wonderful
3: story of his own. What comes back, basically is the actual, um, the surnames in the counties, but it's the stories that people send back are well, the, the real eye openers.
0: Well, I'd love you to share that story from the right from the beginning with Mary and her dad. That, that oh, That's yeah, one that yeah. I don't think we'll forget no, no matter no. how many years pass.
3: You know, because as you said there, there was a, there was a as you say, a fierce workload on us at the early times of the actual letter. And in some ways we're kind of wondering, should we actually continue or not? Do you, know, do you remember that? And uh, fairly early on, we actually got a letter from a lady called, well, we will call her Mary in this case, and she basically talked about how she used to get the letter every Sunday morning and herself and her dad used to actually just kind of, you know, they were close enough already, if you like, but they used to get together every Sunday morning, read the letter and just have a chat about their memories from around the letter. Now, Mary's dad was actually, um, unfortunately, dying at the time. And by the time she contacted us, he had actually passed away. But she wrote just to thank us, just to, I suppose, help facilitate the special conversations that they had actually had as a result of that letter. And that was very touching, I must say, in those early days.
0: And from there, the Green Room grew and continues to grow. Mike and I began helping people search for their Irish ancestors, by answering, yes, it was, over 90,000 questions. And we made some interesting discoveries along the way. And if you'd like to hear more of that, do check in to episode 405, where you'll find it at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 405. And you'll hear some more about those interesting discoveries. But of course, we don't do this all on our own. And in this series, we interviewed... Jane McGarvey and Pam Holland both professional genealogists who work with us in the green room in series 406 an interview with an American genealogist on tracing Irish ancestors here is Pam Holland and where it all began for her
3: what was it that actually got you into genealogy in the first place? Because I understand that's not your... Well, I'm not sure anybody no, no, graduates I, with a degree in genealogy no, I was anyway.
5: I computer programmer many years ago. Okay. And um, when my dad was still alive, I was interested in finding out about his ancestry and did some research for him. And that's sort of when I got hooked and started doing more and then got interested in my husband's family and then learning mm. more about my own background. And it just kind of snowballed and... That's where I
3: am today. And actually, if you don't want me asking, I remember you kind of saying...
5: I know many
0: of our listeners are outside of Ireland, so I thought it would be good to have a listen here to Pam's thoughts as an American genealogist about what people should do in their own backyard in the US, and this refers to other lands as well, before searching for a location of your people back in Ireland.
3: So from that perspective, you know, researching Irish ancestral lines here from the US... I know we, t- we had a chat about it earlier and we talked about maybe kind of some of your kind of top tips or ideas or things you've noticed particularly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that people should do more of Yes. before they reach back to Ireland. And maybe could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Some of the things.
5: Well, you know, I always you know it's so tempting just to look at the records that are online and and see what you can find and that's very important to look at all of those birth,
3: marriage, death be they in Ireland or here in the US. Yeah, especially the ones
5: in the US but it's also really important to look to see what your family may already have I mean there may be some kind of memorabilia in your family.
3: So it might be a bible or it might be a story or it could be
5: uh, yeah, or you know if someone fought in a war maybe they have something that has a something that might link you back to some place in Ireland.
3: Yeah. And also
5: I think it's really important a lot of people kind of neglect going and looking in the cemeteries and looking at the actual headstones because it's interesting that things will be written on those headstones that you had no idea... You knew that you didn't know that about the person. So
3: it could be a connection with somebody else, or it could be kind of something uh, sometimes giving a townland name. Or yeah, it could be a lot of Sometimes it'll things. have
5: a parish or a townland name. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's confusing because you don't recognize the name because it's been kind of phonetically spelled as the, the way
3: Yes. You know, it's okay. been
5: heard here in the US. But sometimes you can um, use that as a good clue to figuring out.
0: In series 409, we sat down with Jane McGarvey, an Irish genealogist of 40 years' experience based here in Ireland, who assists our Green Room members in their Irish ancestry search. Mike's question for Jane sets the scene.
3: How did you
6: get into genealogy in the first place? Because my family wouldn't answer a single question. My father's attitude was, they're dead. And on my mother's side of the family was, how dare you be cheeky? Okay. But what age are you roughly at that time? I was in my teens. That is quite young, isn't it? It was. But it was the only way I could get an answer.
3: But what scratched the, you know, the curiosity in the first place to want to ask the questions?
6: Sheer lack of knowledge. The fact that I think I saw my family knowing things that I didn't know, I didn't understand, I didn't see where from. Both my grandfathers had died before I was born. My paternal grandmother died when when I was quite young, at seven. And my maternal grandmother wouldn't talk about anything that was about older than about a year ago.
3: So we can take it that you're into a challenge.
6: Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Things got more serious and Mike and Jane got down to discussing the three signs that you are making progress with your Irish family history research and that you are moving in the correct direction from just enjoying all things Irish, nothing wrong with that, to making some serious headway in your Irish ancestry search. Here Jane McGarvey explains one of those signs that as a researcher you're moving in the right direction and i think we can all relate to this piece of advice.
3: Let's dive in now into maybe kind of what we what you figure are three of the main signs that you're actually starting on your journey or maybe progressing on your journey from being a culturalist to being a
6: rounded yep.
3: family history researcher. So what's the first sign?
6: The first sign i would say mike is been prepared to edit your family tree and cite your sources.
3: Okay, well, this this feels like kind of a comment on those trees on Ancestry.com just about to come up.
6: Yes, there are a lot of trees. Some of them are, again, like the old pedigree printed pedigrees. Some are incredibly accurate and some are flights of fancy and everything in between. But they're unsourced. There's no knowledge of where the information came from. Okay, well... Let me
3: kind of just challenge that a little bit. So, on the one hand, you might actually obviously, it's for argument's sake, have marriage. And I can then see that I can connect that marriage to a very specific record. And if I'm an ancestry.com, I can literally click a button and say, now that's connected to that event. And that's what we mean by uh, citing a source. Would that be correct?
6: Well, citing the source is simply giving the address of where you found the piece of documentary evidence.
3: Okay, but should you get rid of everything on your tree that you cannot attach a piece of documentary evidence to?
6: No. Tell me more. Because some is good family information. And if you have a piece of evidence that is oral family history, then you cite that as oral family history.
0: If you'd like to hear more, have a listen to episode 409, where Jane, drawing on her extensive experience, makes some very interesting suggestions that may surprise both those beginning their Irish family history research and the more experienced researchers. Have a listen to the rest of that interview at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 409. Mike's weekly letter from Ireland is written each Sunday here from our home in County Cork and it goes out to over 30,000 readers. If you'd like to receive the free letter from Ireland I'll leave a link in the show notes below and we'd love to have you join us there. These letters sparked oh many things for us. Ancestral trails, homeland features, the setting up of the green room, and they've helped many connect with Ireland and their Irish heritage. So I leave you with an observation of our Irish genealogist Jane McGarvey to focus on what's really important.
6: There's an old saying: Birth certificates show they were born; death certificates show they died. But it's the dash in between that shows how they really lived.
3: (laughs) Oh, that's really good. So if you see something, as we always do, uh, 1906-1956. You have two facts there, but you have a lot of richness in between in the dash.
6: That's where the real interest and the the curiosity and the information lies. And what I think is, is much more roundness. Rather than just birth, married, died.
3: Okay, so not just the events. Births of kids, marriage and so on. But something more. So what what what, what are you inferring there? What else might there be apart from the events that I recorded? Who the person was. And how do we who, know that? Who
6: was your ancestor? What did they do for a job?
3: Jobs, okay.
6: Um, how did they live? Did they have hobbies? Did they play cricket? Did they play hurling? Were they a member of the GAA? Were they an orange man? Were they Catholic? Were they Protestant? Uh, what What did they do? How did they live? What did they eat? Where did they live? What was their house like?
0: Well, what did you think of that? Jane's suggestion that we get to know our ancestors by filling in that dash, I think that gives a wonderful perspective and plenty of food for thought as we end the highlights from series four. I hope you enjoyed our journey looking back on the series and I'm very grateful to those who contributed, Mike, Pam, Jane, our Green Room members and friends too who generously shared the stories of their own ancestors and all that we met along the way. So that brings us once again to the close of the show and to the end of the series. A warm thanks to your listeners for your company on today's Letter from Ireland show and throughout the series. If you'd like to explore further any of the episodes mentioned in today's show, the links are available in the show notes at aletterfromireland.com forward slash 410. Slán go fóill, bye for now. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us next time when we bring you a brand new series of the Letter from Ireland show. If you've enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we'd like to invite you to check out our special membership area, The Green Room. You hear us mention it a lot during the show and you can find full details of The Green Room at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Our green room is the essential resource for anybody at any stage in researching their Irish heritage because it's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and really connect the pieces in your Irish ancestry puzzle. In the green room, you get access to online genealogists, extensive research to tools, quick win training, as well as member only access to johngrenham.com, and a very supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice.